Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us today, and uh, we are podcasting once again from Flatbed Pizza here in South Windsor, Connecticut. And uh, we enjoy this place. It's a great atmosphere for us, and we hope uh, that you'll enjoy today's show. But anyway, the gang's all here, so why don't we introduce ourselves, and then we'll get into the subject of the day. Well, I'll go to my left. Okay, and that doesn't mean I'm a leftist, I'm just sitting <laughs> Somebody on has left. to be there. <laughs> well, most people to aren't to the left of Chris, let's be <laughs> yeah, real here. That's right. And once upon a time, I was a leftist, long, long, long time ago. That's right. Um, as most children are. Um, <laughs> um, so, and just before, you know, before I introduce myself, there is very fine beer here and mm. pizza as well. So, uh, right, right. So just to throw that out there, um, Tom Price, I'm a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, and I do teach both. Great. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a European historian, a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester and I'm the author of The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Anyway, today uh, we're going to be talking about uh, someone who has been very influential in my thinking. It's my day if you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't figured that out. And uh, the, the person I want to talk about is Robert Nisbet. Now, the reason why uh, I was prompted to think a little bit about uh, Nisbet and how he's influenced what I've done is because I, I came across an article in uh, Chronicles. And uh, Chronicles is a, is a great uh, uh, magazine uh, that's been around for, for a while. And it's a, it's a paleoconservative um, publication. And, uh, and as we get into this a little bit, maybe we'll be able to help our listeners understand that a little about the different strands of conservatism because uh, Nisbet is definitely a, a, uh, a luminary in the world of paleoconservatism or social conservative thought, uh, intellectual thought. Now, Nisbet was a giant in his time and produced a number of books that uh, are really important. But the book that influenced me is a book entitled The Quest for Community. And it was uh, recently republished by ISI, and it has a, an introduction by Russ Duhat, you know, the, the uh, columnist over at the New York Times. And uh, so I, I, uh, I bought it, but I, but I already had a copy from days gone by and I couldn't find it, so I bought this one, so I, you know, and then I read it again and marked it all up. But uh, Nisbet was a, uh, a sociologist. And uh, the places he taught were pretty significant. You know, he was at Berkeley, taught at Berkeley, taught at Arizona. Then he uh, was at uh, Columbia. And then he was the dean and vice chancellor at the University of California, Riverside. So this is a guy, you know, that uh, no one could ignore uh, because of the place that he occupied within the world of sociology, uh, but also in the world of sort of political uh, and... Uh, a philosophy, because he was kind of an old school kind of sociologist, Emil, you know, Durkheim kind of person, you know, or, or uh, you know, other uh, sociologists who didn't limit themselves to number crunching and statistics, like a lot of the guys seem to, you know, want to do, want, want sort of limit themselves to how they limit themselves today with their pretensions to, to being scientists. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But uh, so Nisbet, uh, you know, as I noted, uh, wrote the Quest for Community, and he was a good buddy with Russell Kirk, 
Now, Russell Kirk is a fellow that um, was a very colorful person, and uh, he, he was fa famous for a book he, in, he wrote entitled The uh, Conservative Mind, which came out, I think, in the early 50s and really put Russell Kirk on the map. Mm. But Kirk and Nisbet were, like I noted, a couple of luminaries in the paleoconservative world. Now, to give folks a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of a sort of a, a framework for understanding what I mean by paleoconservatism. When we think of conservatism, most people would, are what, what you know you might ref, what might be referred to as sort of knee-jerk conservatives, common sense conservatives, conservatives who watch Fox News, <laughs> people who just think, how can anyone believe such nonsense when they hear progressives or Marxists? you know, say nonsense, <laughs> you know. So, so they're good folks, uh, but they're more kind of operating from uh, kind of an emotive and unreflective, uh, uh, you know, outlook. Uh, now, when you get into the sort of intellectual, uh, the intellectual sort of, you know, world of conservatism, you, you discover that there are different camps or different sort of outlooks. So libertarianism, uh, you know, is a, an outlook that, you know, is often associated with people like Ayn Rand and so yeah. forth. Uh, and it's very individualistic. It's, it's uh, often uh, materialistic and even atheistic. But it's all about, you know, efficient uh, economic systems and people pursuing their own goals and not being interfered with by the, you know, uh, by the government. And there are a number of things about, you know, the things that libertarians support that other conservatives support, but then there are also some important divergences. Uh, then we could talk about, you know, something that some folks refer to as classical liberalism, which is a little odd to say that classical liberals are conservatives, but, uh, but when we think about classical liberalism, we're essentially talking about people who were influenced by enlightenment thinking uh, and still sort of you know, look at the individual as sort of the basis of the social order. Everything kind of yeah. boils down. And, and classical liberals are people who often, you know, lionize uh, certain rights, you know. Uh, and you this know. is kind of what weds oftentimes libertarians with uh, um, this type of um, classical liberal. Right. Is this kind of center on the individual. Right. Um, even though there's differences, that kind of brings them, without oftentimes knowing it, into similar political yeah. territory. It, right. It's also worth noting that <clears throat> the American founders were essentially classic liberals. That's right. Yeah. So That's right. in the context of American culture, a liberal is a conservative. Right. That's, right. That's right. Yeah, you have to go back over to the continent, back to right. across yeah. the pond. If yeah. you go across the pond to Europe, <laughs> yeah, a, right. a liberal, it, there, 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 this goes back to <laughs> ideas of free market economics, right, um, right, right. You know, the, the Smith, liberties uh, of the individual, all right. of those kinds mm -hmm. of things, which were part of the currency, the intellectual currency in the Enlightenment in the late 18th century. Right. So. So, yeah, that's a great, and so, you know, when we, when we talk about classical liberals, we're talking about people like, you know, Adam Smith, or we're talking about Thomas Jefferson, or even Benjamin Franklin, people that, you know, warm the hearts of many American conservatives. And just kind of throw out there this little note, these would um, maybe be on the same page with a traditional Christian in terms of the significance of a lot of institutions that have gotten us to where we are. 
But oftentimes a classical liberal in other ways would often undermine those very yes. things. Yes. So that, we will. We'll and that's exactly what Nisbet excellent. gets into. Oh, yeah, good, yeah. Good. So, so uh, and what we mean by that is, you know, say a person like uh, Benjamin Franklin. You know, Benjamin Franklin will uh, defend Christianity on utilitarian grounds, not on its truth. You know, he won't say Jesus was actually the Christ or the Son of God. He'll say people who believe that tend to save their money. <laughs> you know, tend to defer their gratification, tend to work hard, you know, and so therefore, religion is a positive, you know, it's a social good because it contributes to social stability and personal responsibility and those kinds of things. But, you know, you know, it's not tr necessarily true because it's just true. It's in a non-utilitarian. It's yeah. Yeah, it's useful. It's not uselessly true, which is a good thing, <laughs> as we'll see later. That's right. <laughs> now, you know, in my experience, most uh, of the social conservatives, sort of knee-jerk or common-sense conservatives that I know, are actually conservative at a deeper level than libertarians or classical liberals, but but they tend to gravitate toward libertarianism or classical liberalism because that's all they know. And that seems and they, sometimes and, to only be the the, the the expression that's on offer. Yeah, that's yeah. the only thing that they, they, they hear about, and they know, you know, it's sort of like the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend yes. kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. those wackos who are protesting the, the, Ant, the Antifa people, all that kind of stuff, I don't like those people, and neither does Ayn Rand. So Ayn Rand must be great. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's right. You know, so, but, the, but there is another uh, strain or uh, thread of conservative thought in the West that is referred to often as paleoconservatism or social conservatism. And Russell Kirk, who you know wrote for National Review and uh, was a pretty significant, and a very colorful person, by the way. He had a sword cane. You know, <laughs> we're talking about that kind of, he never drove. Really? Yeah, in fact, uh, he hated technology so much that when he discovered that his daughters had snuck a television into the house, he went to the tower in his house and threw it threw out it the window. See, see, a lot, a lot of people don't get this. I mean, this is similar, we'll, we'll talk, you know, we'll also talk about Roger Scruton, but a lot of people think of, you know, conservatism is this weird type of ultra-consumerist, right. um, indulgent um, uh, uh, exploiter. Of, of nature and everything else, when classically, um, when we understand what it is to conserve, and a, a real conservative, and, and I'll say even as a Christian, is someone who is conserving the goods of the created order, not saying they don't need redemption, just talking right, about right. The, the, the preservation of that which has, has been given as gift, um, one sees that there, there is something that oftentimes has a semblance of what, for example, the counterculture and hippie movements oh, wanted yeah, to, yeah. to aim at. Right. Um, so you look more in continuity with, with movements like that at, at some points, and environment as well, without turning it into an ideology or a, a new god. Well, yeah, in terms, yeah. Of, you know, for paleoconservatives, like ideology is the devil, yeah. and we should probably spend a little time talking about that, maybe in the course of the show. But, but this 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 point you just made, Tom, brings to mind something that happened in Russell Kirk's life that was kind of amusing. <laughs> Yeah. So Russell Kirk, he was, a, he was he, you know, he had a doctorate, but he was a man of letters. He didn't, he didn't actually teach in a in a university setting or anything. He just he felt that higher education had become industrialized. He's right, and, I think. <laughs> and so, but and he had the means, the monetary, you know, resources to to kind of live independently, nice. like Roger Scruton that we're going to be talking about yeah, a little yeah. later. 
but so, but he he founded some journals, uh, Modern Age, you know, the University of Bookman, did different things. But uh, he was invited to uh, participate in debate in a debate over the environment, hmm. and uh, I think it was at some <laughs> university in like Virginia or something like that. And so he he responded, "Well, I, I'd be happy to do that. What am I? What, you know, what side am I on? And what am I for?" And he said, "Well, we're talking about the environment, and you're against it." <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Hold it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't I'm not against the environment. That's right. <laughs> I want to conserve the environment. Now, now we think about when we think about like Earth Day. Yeah, isn't it interesting that Earth Day, which is this wacko sort of Earth First cult kind yeah, of right. thing, uh, has in, in the minds of many people eclipsed Arbor Day? Hmm. Wasn't remember Arbor Day mm -hmm. was about planting trees and things like mm -hmm. that, but, and it was a very conservative kind of yeah. outlook on the environment. Yeah. But anyway, that, that kind of gives yeah. us. But I, I, I do think yeah. I, that you're right, Tom. That, 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 when we talk about paleoconservatives, there are certain ways in which paleoconservatives can actually relate to and have more in common yeah. with a certain kind of progressive. That's right. Yeah. Particularly ones who are in favor of you know the natural order or That's making sure that small communities are protected. Connectedness to, to, to nature, um, right. agriculture, yeah. craft. Right, yeah, um, those definitely are. Yeah. And so you could say that Vermont, yeah. you know, if you look at it in one way, it's the most progressive state, and in another way, you could look at it and say it's the most socially conservative of our states. Yeah, I think I'm doing good for now. Sure. Thanks. So, but now that probably sounds very weird to <laughs> our to our audience. But let me give you an example of a, of a way in which con, uh, Vermont is actually paleoconservative in a way that some progressives would say, cool, billboards are illegal in Vermont. Hmm. And there's one Walmart in the entire state. It hasn't been Walmart, <laughs> Wal I can't even say the word. Walmartified? Yeah, <laughs> Walmartified. So if you go to Vermont, almost every town still has a general store. That's where you shop. Yeah. I think the word you were looking for is Walmartification. Yes, <laughs> of the flesh. <laughs> that's, that's right. Now, what, is this, what does all this have to do with Robert Nisbet? Yeah. So what, I, what I'd like to do is, is just read a little bit from Nisbet, and then I, I think we can just sort of freewheel it here and react to, to the things that Nisbet uh, says. And I'm going to be reading from uh, the Quest for Community. Now, to give a little bit of background on how Nisbet has influenced me, well, let me, let, me, let me save what I'm going to say for a little later because at this point I want to just uh, read a few selections, maybe two or three selections from the first chapter of the book, The Quest for Community, and the, and the title of the first chapter is The Loss of Community. Mm. So here's the first sentence. Uh, uh, in the first chapter. Quote, one may paraphrase the famous words of Karl Marx <laughs> and say that a specter is haunting the modern mind, <laughs> the specter of insecurity. Now, we know from the Communist Manifesto that what Marx said is the specter of communism. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is a sort of interesting inversion because if there was anybody who was the anti-commie thinking guy, it was Robert Nisbet. Thank now, you. now what Nisbet is getting at is that in, you know in the modern world the individual uh, is has had you know the traditional supports stripped away. 
the supports of uh, you know a functional family, the supports of a healthy, vibrant local community, the the support of the of a church or a parish that actually did stuff. Virtuous leadership. Virtuous leadership. So all yeah. these things are gone uh, in the modern world. Now here's here's another uh, here's another uh, quotation from uh, the loss of community, the first chapter of the Quest for Community. Quote. All of these words, he's, you know, listed a set of, of terms. So let me give you the list. Individual, change, progress, reason, and freedom. Okay, those were the words that he lists. <laughs> and he says, all of these words reflect a temper of mind that found the essence of society to lie in the solid fact of the discrete individual, autonomous, self-sufficing, and stable and the essence of history to lie in the progressive emancipation of the individual from the tyrannic, tyrannous, uh, tyrannous, I should say, tyrannous. I wanted to say tyrannosaurus. <laughs> but they, they, I think most individuals want to be liberated from tyrannosaurus. <laughs> you know, if, if, if it were a real issue, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that would be a... That's right. We need to bring them back Jurassic to... Park. <laughs> in, in the young earth, it was the issue. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Oh, Sorry, folks. We just lost half our audience. Uh, yeah. Sorry, guys. That's right. Let's well, return to build it up again. And... <laughs> oh, 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 that kills me. Anyway, let's get back, get back to Robert Nisbet. Yeah. Oh. There have just been a number of people who have unsubscribed. <laughs> yeah. we're, looking, we're looking for new, for new listeners. <laughs> okay, let me go back and read this again. <laughs> oh. Anyway, uh, <laughs> all of these words reflect the temper of mind that found the essence of society lie in the solid fact of the discrete individual, autonomous, self-sufficing, and stable, and the essence of history to lie in the progressive emancipation of the individual from uh, tyrannous and irrational statuses handed down from the past. So, you know, for example, you know, what we deal with now is, you know, the patriarchy, mm. which is essentially, you know, the father who is representing the traditional understanding of the household, in other words, as a functional institution, is now considered rather, you know, instead of being a benefactor, instead of being essential, uh, someone who's in the way. Yeah, to, a problem. Yeah, a problem yeah. to children, problem to women, problem to homosexuals, a problem to all these different people. If we can just get the patriarch out of the way, then these people will be free to define themselves to be themselves. Uh, now, now there's a lot we could say about that, but that's, yeah. that's uh, one what, of the things he's getting at. What, what I'm struck with here is the, the, and part of this is just what I've been teaching um, today. <laughs> um, what, what, one of the things I'm struck with here is that you know, when you look at metaphysics, when you look at the, the problem of universals, okay? Right which in a nutshell is, you know, the analogy I'll always use is leaves on a tree. 
All the leaves are different, but somehow we've got one word to describe the whole lot of them. Each right. of them is a leaf, but no two of them are alike. Right. So how do you unite, unite the particulars into the universal? What's the relationship between them? And they're basically, classically, there are two approaches. One of them starts with the universal and goes to the particular. The other goes with, starts with the particular and goes to the universal. Either way, both are real. It's just a question of what's primary. Hmm. What, when you get to medieval nominalism, mm -hmm. the universal is nothing more than a linguistic convention. Right. Yeah. Now, medieval nominalism, mm -hmm. I'm going to disagree with a lot of people here, medieval nominalism largely dies out, but there's a sort of new version of it that comes out. And what strikes me is what he's describing there is a nominalist way of approaching humanity. Interesting. That there is no, there are no real universals. There's nothing that unites the particulars. They're all just a bunch of discreet things yeah, out yeah. there. Like you know, Leibniz with his monads, you know, mm -hmm. so you, have, you know, yeah. all these things that are just sort of like, like atoms, social atoms. Right. right? In, in a lot of the theological world followed that, but what it did is it embraced in a sense, I'm not saying full nominalism, it didn't, it criticized a lot of it. But it, it did start to embrace something that we, we, we've talked about as sort of a pure nature. But one of the things, for them, what held it together was sort of an arbitrary act of deity. So a, a, what we would call a voluntaristic view of God is sort of the commanding God right. who, who imposes arbitrarily, not, not because he's conforming to the nature of who God is, but sort of his nature now is determined by the way he acts, um, imposes that form on things. So in either case, you have a very altered picture than, than the world of universals that, that historic Christianity carved itself out in. You have a new setting in which even, um, even for a lot of Christians, um, the, the individual in the particular starts to take on this heightened sense of, of almost everything and the kind of universal and that which holds things together the harmony, if you will, starts to be removed from the picture. And if anything, it's only conceived as arbitrary on one end or merely linguistic on another, depending right. on where you, whether you're mm -hmm. Christian or not in that world. <laughs> See, and, and where I go immediately is the relationship of the individual to the family. Yes. Where is, what's primary, what's secondary? Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually a really tricky question, mm -hmm. but What's the current thing? Love makes a family. A right. family is a linguistic convention that we use to designate whatever particular group we want it to be. Mm -hmm. there, is a, there is a disconnect mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. has developed between the individual and the family so that family is not even acknowledged as anything real. Right, well that's that, and what, and what you know, Russell Kirk and what Robert Nisbet uh, were doing was very much in, in sort of the, uh, the tradition of, of, of the realists, which was recognizing that uh, there is some kind of metaphysical basis for uh, human life that uh, is instantiated in social arrangements. So, mm -hmm. so people aren't really capable of living the way that is described here as discrete individuals. That's right. You know, uh, you know, Tarzan. <laughs> you know, uh, is 
fiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's not yeah, real. You know, right. what's real? Well, what's real is that people, you know, live in 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 relationship to other people from the start. Yeah. And that this is this is tremendously important. And there and there's a whole you know thread or or a tradition of thought, you know, that we can trace all the way back to Plato through Aristotle and and even before that. And it recognizes this. And there's an mm -hmm. interesting thing because, you know, oftentimes I don't I don't think I contemplate this enough, but what you, what you get mimicked in 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 creation, Genesis account is, um, on the one hand, everything, all creation, gets its everything from the Creator. It's mm -hmm. absolute dependence. In other words, there. It, it, I always tell my students, um, the nothing that creation is is not a little bit of something. It's the introduction of being entirely. Yeah. So everything we are, everything we have, everything is determined and defined by the Creator, whether we like it or not. And if we are not being itself, tough luck. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's a gift all the way down. But then what you end up seeing is what gets mimicked in the created order is a certain sense of dependencies that are analogous to that. What are right. they? Parental dependencies, yeah, right. relational dependencies, dependencies right. on other aspects of creation. Right. It's an amazing thing that we're not only dependent on the creator in an absolute sense, but relatively we're dependent on this whole. Right. And so yeah. that is what this is kind of on to. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, to sort of fill our folks in on sort of how this you know, kind of ties into what Nisbet is up to. Nisbet is, just let me just summarize, you know, sort of the essence of his thought as best I can. Basically, it's this. The individualism that we, you know, lionize and champion in the West right now strips away all of the traditional supports uh, historically, you know, you know, that have been relied upon to take care of just a number of things, not only psychological needs, but just plain everyday physical needs yeah. that people have. Right. You know, someday I'm going to be an old man and I'm going to need, uh, well, some people think I'm an old man already, <laughs> <laughs> but, but someday I'm going to need more help than I already need just to get through the day. Yeah. So with that in mind, what does classical liberalism have to offer the, the sort of the, the, the facts on the ground? Well, this is it a state. Yep. The state has to fill in yeah. and, and you know for all of the stuff yeah. that the state has helped to strip away. That's right. Or very, very expensive corporate. That's right. <laughs> One of the and, two. and it's yeah. it's done in the mechanical way. So yeah. so what paleoconservatives mm -hmm. you know are, are advocating is is a you know they're, what they're saying is that we have these organic uh, systems that occur naturally, mm -hmm. you know, families and local communities and da-da-da-da-da. And, yeah, yeah, and yes, they do make demands on us because the only way that those systems can work is if everybody pulls their own weight, you know, does things for each other. So, you know, an example would be, you know, if, you know, an infant is utterly dependent upon his, his or her parents, then they take care of, you know, the child when the child is cute and small and dependent. Uh, and later in life that child returns the favor is duty bound yeah. to care for his parents in their old age and in their infirmity when they kind of return to infancy themselves in certain respects which is something i, re I recall as a, even as a kid i mean i'm, I'm you know i'm old enough <laughs> to have been across that threshold i'll never forget as a as a child i was uh, i lived in massachusetts at the time the state I was born 
And I remember we had a, uh, some friends top of the street, and one morning their parents were going to take us to school for that day. I remember going into the house, and their elderly grandmother in her 90s mm. was there, mm -hmm. being cared for to, yeah. and taken care of in that context. And I just always remember thinking to myself, this is very interesting. I hadn't had the experience at the time. I, my grandmother was not quite uh, at that age where she, she had to kind of move to, to caregiving. Um, but it was one of the, my first introductions to the way in which there was this kind of, I was used to my parents taking care of me, but I consciously was aware now this family was taking care of, right. of uh, an elder, uh, elder parent. And, uh, and, and so it showed me this connectedness very young. Right. And if that wasn't the case, who would pick up the slack? That's right. The, the government would yeah. have to pick up That's the right. slack. Or, you know, or you know, perhaps some other institution. You know, when we think about the early church, yeah. there was, you know, obviously, you know, the, uh, the call to care for widows. Yeah. But again, we're not talking about the state. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about communities which have faced, you know, where people have face-to-face -face interactions. Yeah. So what Nisbet is saying yeah, is... No, just, just a quick sure, note, you sure. know, bringing in the church is a really interesting one as well, yeah. because the great heresy yeah. of, of America is individualism. Right. So it can be just me and Jesus. That's it. I don't need the church, I don't have to go to the church. The church is a collection of autonomous saved individuals. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Rather than an, a body with its own identity yeah. and integrity. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, that, that, that issue of, you know, what we, we in theology call the ontology of the church is a huge issue. I mean, what is, what is it that defined, defines the being of the church? And when you have scripture language, like, can the hand say to the arm, you know, I don't mm -hmm. need you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and similarly, all the way down to, to the organic, which I think it's, it's very much um, rooted in, mm -hmm. um, you, you have this very deep connection between um, the way in which um, all of creation has this harmonious working mm -hmm. um, that is for the full um, development and uh, spiritual fullness, ultimately, right. of every, every particular thing of that creation. So, so the, the particular and the individual that the modern is so obsessed with has its completion within this whole. Mm -hmm. When it tries to become an end in of itself, you know, when you, know, when you seek, you know, the, what is it, uh, what, is, what is the famous biblical line, you know, when you, when you seek your own pursuits, you end up dying, but when right, you right. actually seek the kingdom, you find your fulfillment. Right. Very similar within, oh, within yeah, the created yeah, whole. Yeah. Which, yeah. which I think dem demonstrates that the temptation to kind of just be autonomous yeah. Goes a long way back. Well, it goes back to the beginning. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, well, that's right. You know, so so Nisbet's great fear was socialism. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a student of Alexis de Tocqueville. You know, and, and the idea, you know, that de Tocqueville, you know, back in the early 19th century, Tocqueville, when he came over to the United States from France and wrote his famous book, you know, uh, he he predicted that this sort of tutelary and benevolent sort of apparatus, the, you know, the state, would take over more and more of the, of the functions of a, of a healthy local s sort of community or society, and uh, essentially become a kind of benevolent uh, mother who just never lets anybody grow up. Mm. You know, what, what a state like that wants is infants. 
you know, <laughs> to just be utterly dependent upon it. Yes. And uh, socialism is, is essentially that. It's, it's all about, you know, will you, in fact, I remember when I was at Harvard Divinity School, I, I remember I completely blew the minds of my interlocutors there and, and offended a number of them. I said, you know, what you guys are all about <laughs> is you want, to, you want to exchange substantive freedoms, in other words, the freedom to be responsible for yourself and your actions, for petty freedoms so that you can screw whatever you want to screw. Yeah. In other words, sexual freedom. You, you just want mm -hmm. to have this libertine yeah. lifestyle without consequences. And you want the government to come in and mop up after you. Yeah. Take care of all your mess. As well as criminalizing any criticism of your behavior. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, of course, they were all tremendously offended, but actually weren't able to respond. Yeah. Right. They never yeah. do. They never do. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the deal is that, that they're going for is unlimited freedom, by which they mean sexual freedom, enforced by rigid governmental sanctions. Yeah, and that's the... And, and, that, and think about that. Oh, yeah. yeah that's, but, but, that's, but that's actually the inevitable sort of uh, outworking of this kind of uh, understanding of things. So Nisbet would say, and I know this will offend some of, hmm. some of our, uh, you know, knee-jerk, you know, conservatives. Some of our remaining listeners. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But, but what, what Nisbet says is this is where Thomas Jefferson takes you. Yeah. In other yeah. words, this is, a, this is the natural outworking yeah. of this kind of classical liberalism. So what, what Nisbet would like us to, to do is recover uh, the institutions that we are, you know, casting aside because they're oppressive. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that, you know, the institutions that, you know, we've relied on in the past can't go bad. I mean, churches go bad, church leaders can go bad, fathers can be bad, mothers can that's be bad. Right. We all know that. Yeah. But let me let me jump ahead a little bit in this book. Uh, and he, he gets into this, this. This is a chapter entitled The Problem of Community. And mm -hmm. uh, he's addressing this very, this very thing. Um, so... Here he says, uh, but the decline of effective meaning. And what he's getting at here is he's saying that you really can't have um, me you know, meaning without institutions. Mm -hmm. And that, So that's kind of the background here. Yeah. Now, I don't think many modern people think that way at yeah. all. I think that people think that we just make up meanings and the institutions get in the way. I think in a weird way, uh, I don't want to go off on this, but I think in a weird way Wittgenstein was trying to recover something of that. Interesting. That, that, that the, the, socio, the social meaning, the yeah. institutional meaning, yeah. is what gave, gave re, uh, sense to the reference. They, well, yeah, and I think yeah. that Nisbet, yeah. you know, we'll see that here. Yeah, so interesting. He says, but the decline of effective meaning is itself a part of a more fundamental change in the role of such groups as the family and the local community. At bottom, social organization is a pattern of institution, institutional functions into which we are woven uh, we, uh, numerous psychological threads of meaning, loyalty, and interdependence. Hmm. The contemporary sense of alienation is most directly perhaps a problem of symbols and meanings, and it is also a problem of, uh, in the institutional functions of uh, the relationships that ordinarily communicate integration and purpose to individuals. Now that's a, lot, that's a pretty difficult sentence, but he goes on to explain what he's getting at. In any society, the concrete loyalties and devotions of individuals tend to become uh, directed toward the associations and patterns of leadership that in the long run have the greatest 
perceptible significance in the maintenance of life. Now, I'm gonna stop here and just interject. Mm -hmm. Today, most people don't even know who their local representative is, you know, at the town level or at the state level. But everybody is completely obsessed with Trump. That's right. <laughs> so yeah. what does that say? That, that says that we don't really believe that local institutions or even at the state level, you know, that those folks are really doing anything terribly important. The thing that really is important is the federal government and who's running it. And it's interesting. Well, in, in, in Connecticut, it's not so much that the governor isn't doing anything terribly important. It's he's doing things that are terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you lived in Connecticut, you know what, yeah, what I was yeah. talking about. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, when I, I, was, uh, I was speaking at one of the institutions I teach at locally, and I, I had one of the uh, Catholic worker movement guys come uh, in. Oh, yeah, we know Very those guys. Very left-wing, yeah. Orbis Books. Orbis Books guys. <laughs> but one of the interesting things he did say, and this is what I always say, is that, that actually... Uh, a, um, a historic classical, whether it be Christian or, or conservative, oftentimes has affinities with certain things these people say. Because he said exactly the same thing. Hmm. He said everyone's obsessed with the, the big symbol. They don't yeah. realize that it's the particular and the local that is where all the shifting and shaping happens. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, they, maybe they've learned that through experience because nothing's hmm. moved with their ideals. Other, but, but if you notice, I mean, I've noticed legislation pass here where I've only heard about it on the radio, and I've never heard about it anywhere else, and it was already when it was being passed, and it wasn't for the good of anyone. Yeah, yeah. But that's because those people who recognize that the pressure um, is here in the particular... Um, yeah. Well, this is why uh, yeah. you know, paleoconservatives uh, are kind of funky. Because yeah. I've known several paleoconservatives who don't drive. Yeah. You know, they just well, you know what the interesting thing is? The other thing, no kidding, he told the classes they don't need a car. Yeah. yeah. So here is a leftist, yeah. Catholic social worker, and he's convincing the youth they don't need to have an automobile. Yeah. Well, I, I, have, I have a friend who's about as far right as you could possibly get yeah. named David Trumbull. Yeah. He, he's, uh, he lives in downtown Boston precisely because he doesn't want to have to drive. Drunk. And And Russell Kirk didn't drive. Uh, Ray Bradbury didn't drive, yeah. the famous uh, science fiction writer who wrote Fahrenheit. But it's funny that driving obsession on, on both sides. <laughs> but but, what, but what, what they're saying yeah. is, in a sense, is that, you know, the ambulatory, the, the peripatetic, you yeah. know, that, that the fact that human scale matters, yeah. that, you know, what we're able to sort of understand uh, at a sort of intuitive and sort of experiential level is limited. Interesting, yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting. Roger Scruton will talk about often a lot of the significant architects that have done the best work in terms of building community is wrapped around creating aesthetic communities on the human scale. Yeah, human scale, I think, is yeah. is a very important at yeah. both the physical and at the institutional level. Yeah, the interesting thing about this, I find myself thinking about my time in Europe, hmm. and in this sense. London, for example, is not built on a human scale. That's right. Hmm. It is just simply too big. Yeah. Hmm. I yeah. mean, yeah. yeah. Anybody who's been there. Paris is built on a human yes. scale. Interesting. Interesting. Paris is a city that is made for walking. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And in the United States, the certain parts of Boston are made for walking. Yeah. But when you get to the newer parts, yeah. they're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the further away you get from yeah. Beacon Hill, 
the, the less you know, sort of pedestrian friendly, friendly it gets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me read you another part, uh, another paragraph here, another few lines from uh, The Problem Community in the Quester Community by Rebbit Nisbet. He says, quote, our present crisis lies in the fact that whereas small traditional associations founded upon kinship, faith, or locality are still expected to communicate to individuals the principal moral ends and psychological gratifications of society, they have manifestly become detached from positions of functional relevance to the larger economic and political decisions of our society. I think I'll have a conehead. Right. That, that's the stout. No, that's that, Yeah. I'll have another conehead. Definitely. Great. Right. So he goes on to say family, local community, church, and the whole network of infor informal interpersonal relationships that have ceased, uh, have ceased to play a determining role in our institutional systems of mutual aid, welfare, education, recreation, and economic production and distribution. Yet despite the loss of these manifest institutional functions and the failure of most of these groups to develop any new institutional functions, we continue to expect them to perform adequately the implicit psychological or symbolic functions in the life of the individual. Now that that's a mouthful, hmm. but let me just sort of play, sort of, you know, sort of uh, break it down for, for for folks. So what he's saying is, we still expect family to provide a lot of meaning in our lives, but we don't expect family to do anything. Yeah. So in other words, we, we want family to be a warm, emotional, sort of uh, safe haven, you know, a haven in the heartless world. That was a, that was a yeah. book that Christopher Lash wrote, <laughs> expressly you know, uh, criticizing the tendency of, of modern people to think about households in that sort of sentimental way. Yeah. But in the, and, and yet we don't even eat dinner together. Yeah, that's right, we don't eat dinner that's together. Right. And, uh, but you know, as we know, because we've talked about it many times, you know, the pre-modern household did everything. Yeah. It was education, it was healthcare, it was vocational yeah. training, it was productive enterprise, it did everything. Yeah. So in a situation like that, in a household where you're actually, you know, re relying on the household to survive, the patriarch is hugely important and respected and obeyed because to, to, to not obey and not respect is death, literally death. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to take it fully in this direction, but I think part of the economic strain that most families put themselves under and then end up becoming servants to are a result of the fact that all these things have been handed over. Oh, yeah. To yeah. alternatives that, that basically take the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, Thank you. The, re the revenue, thank you. Thanks. They take the revenue that people have and they right. offer such a minimal um, answer to those things that, that, that a household traditionally could have, or a family and a community could have actually handled in a much more comprehensive and significant way. And so they're handing over all of that to someone who not only is taking everything they basically have, but giving them something very minimal in return. Right. That's a false security. Well, you think about, yeah. for example, the costs yeah. that you know we that are that you you are you know you experience or you, you pay yeah. when you put your you know your parents into a nursing home. Oh yeah. Now, I, I know that sometimes. Uh, because of the medical requirements, a person needs access to the kinds of things that only a nursing home can provide. But, uh, but you know, prior to that, you were talking about tens of thousands of dollars, even on a yeah. monthly basis, 
that yeah. people have to pay for the services. That, but if you just brought the guy home or the, or the yeah. woman home, and you know there were people who were, who were caring for this elderly person in the household, uh, you would actually have, you know, the the human connection, yeah. and you would have obviously kind of a subsistence economy. You wouldn't be yeah. handing over dollars. Well, even the, the, the in that human connection played. I mean, a lot of people don't realize the significance of it. For example, you know, I just I had some teeth work done. Um, my insurance will pay 80% of certain things. I have to pay out of pocket the rest. Right. Um, an astronomical amount of money for something that really is about a 15-minute yeah, job. Right, right. Of course, you've got to have the tools. The but what happens is it's so flooded with all these other things, um, mm -hmm. pr um, protecting, you know, um, you know, protecting insurances, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. all of these things. And, of course, the, the upside is it protects the patient, too. The downside mm -hmm. is... What used to be provided by the mere care for someone else within a community is now have to be has to be f basically paid for every time you get something done. Right. So whereas in a community that was close knit organically between families, community, church, and the like, that care was more natural. Mm -hmm. It was more organic. So mm -hmm. therefore, you didn't have to have um, a special set of insurances and protections in place that that, that, uh, that malpractice was going to take place. Yeah, right, right. They were going to do the best they could for you because they were going to do the best they, they could for you. And the value system was connected to that. Now, you don't know. I mean, are you just a number merely? Do you need that root canal? I don't know. I'm not someone, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know right. if I do. Right. And so you have all these extra costs get flooded into what normally and, and could be dealt with in a much, uh, a much more humane way for everyone involved. In much. So if I were to summarize Nisbet, and beyond Nisbet, the, the larger paleoconservative tradition, the more you stress... The, lip, the sort of the, the sort of the, the freedom of the individual, in an amoral sense, that's that's an important thing mm -hmm. to, to you know to make that qualification in yeah. an amoral sense, so that a person can make choices without sort of having to consider the consequences, or having or ha having to consider the people that are affected. The more that kind of freedom, that kind of liberty, libertine freedom, is mm -hmm. celebrated, the the paradox is the larger the state must become yeah. to support people who live that way. Because there's no way yeah. that human beings can live the way the ideal says they... Yeah. We're not gods. That's yeah. right. And this is the whole point of civil society, the idea that there ought to be intermediate institutions between the individual and the state. It's the whole point of Kuiper's um, right. sphere of sovereignty. Right. All of these things disappear mm -hmm. when you move into this kind of thing. And I'm glad you brought up Kuiper because within you know, <clears throat> sort of the larger Christian tradition, there are essentially two strands of thought that recognize this and deal with this. And, and they are, you know, the subsidiarity and you know, sort of the philosophy of subsidiarity that we see within Catholicism. And uh, the, within, you know, the Reformed tradition, sphere sovereignty that we see with Kuiper. Uh, but your typical sort of mainstream megachurch evangelical is completely clueless. Right. Yeah. Completely clueless. Well, well, yeah, it's utilitarian. Let, let, yeah, let me right. give another example. We've talked about the family. Yeah. What about your town? Right. Okay, so think about it. What real connection, challenge to listeners, what real connection do you have to your town? Right. 
what does the town, it is, you know, when I think about it, um, what, what are the things that bring a town together? Well, maybe high school football. Maybe. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, Back in, in Western Pennsylvania, definitely. In, in, in some of us, um, kind of, some of the ones like me who didn't play football but played clarinet, maybe it's the band. <laughs> um, but, right. but aside from that, what is the town? Right. What identity does it have? Or if you're in an urban community, what, what, how about your neighborhood? Right. Does right. your neighborhood have... It used to be that these things were... Everybody knew each other. Yep. Everybody watched out for each other. Yep. Everybody helped with each other's kids. Yep. Everybody knew when there was a problem and worked to solve the problem together. I mean, this isn't, this isn't I'm not trying to paint some sort of idealized past, but this right. was the reality of how these things worked. Right, and you know, I, I actually wrote something for the Boston Herald years ago on this very theme. It was entitled, Amateur Police Are Quickly Disappearing. And uh, it was basically this idea that, you know, you ha in, in, in the old neighborhood, you know, you had that, that fussy and nosy woman who spent all her time at the window watching the kids on the street. So probably that woman was despised or at least feared by the kids. By, by the kids. But the, she was actually appreciated by the other mothers because she would probably get on the phone and say, you know, Johnny, I just saw him <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> do this kind of thing. So, so. But this is the thing about uh, community, when it's really working in the way it should, and that is, is there are irritants. And I suspect that some of the people who don't want to go back to that world are, are, are people who don't understand that we, ca we can't have a world without irritants, that there's always going to be something. So the question is, is what's lost and what's gained? Mm -hmm. So when we end up, you know, when we lose that, when we lose the, the tight-knit neighborhood, where everybody kind of knows everybody, and there's a, you can let your kid. You just open the door of the front of your your your, your brownstone, and, and you know, and little Bobby can run out into the street and play for hours, and you're not even thinking about him. Uh, we've we've lost that, and we instead we've replaced it with helicopter parenting, where a parent which is, is afraid. Once a, which is once again an atomized, yeah. individualistic way of looking at things, right. which. Well, it, it, it's a complete breakdown of, of all of these kinds of values that used to be taken for granted. Yeah, I, I would jump on my bike when I was a kid. I imagine something similar for you, Glenn, you, Tom. And I was gone. Yeah. I was just gone. Until the evening. Till yeah. the, my, my thing was the street light came on at 6 o'clock in the evening. That was time to come out. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Well, you know, it was funny, you know, like, I remember one time, I was like maybe six <laughs> And uh, my mother uh, was kind of freaking out because I decided at six years old that, you know, I didn't want to go the way to school <laughs> that would require me to, like, you know, stay in the lines of the crosswalks and these kinds of, <laughs> kinds of things. I just cut through people's backyards. <laughs> you had your way. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, kind of, and, uh, but, you know, even with that, you know, I was, I was just... I, I just, you know, we talk about free-range childhood. I, my, my, my childhood was like the Serengeti, baby. I, yeah. I, had, and <laughs> I, I was had, just out there. And I had a very conservative home, but part of that was balanced by that a very similar thing. It, ga it gave us that kind of confidence and space to kind of pursue life at a very young age. 
um, in ways that are not even conceivable now. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, we'd go. Yeah, we'd. we'd and, go. I, and I think that's because we we had a we had a way of thinking about freedom. Yeah. And it's a sort of a residue that we had inherited, a way of thinking about freedom that was uh, sort of bound up with responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And also, in in sort of uh, compatible with community. Yeah. Yeah. Now today we don't think that either uh, responsibility or community are helpful. In fact, we think of those things as hindrances to our expression. Yeah, and that's what's hurt. I mean, I evaluate what goes on. I mean, I have teenage a teenager, and, and I evaluate how uh, discombobulated they are with with life. And a lot of it is because these these nets aren't there, mm -hmm. and these things that were you know I remember Rowan Williams once called them kind of lost icons. I think it was a good term. These param social parameters that gave us a sense of where the limit is and, and right. what can be transcended, what can't be. Right. And so they were guidelines, guideposts, signposts, if you will. They're gone for them. The family has been is taken away. The community has been taken. It's every, all, the whole burden is placed on the individual to yeah. realize everything, their identity, their um, sexual... I mean, everything is right. now put on them and they're bearing a, a burden that is not meant for the individual to bear. It's meant for the whole. Right. And that's what, when it gets ripped out of the whole, then it becomes something that... Um, is, and I think yeah. this is why we have identity politics. That's right. And people submerge themselves in these sort of crazy yeah. things. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and the real oppression is that. Yeah, yeah. It's the, 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 the left vision that kind of... The vision that kind or you know it's common it's a combination. I don't just want to blame it on the left. It's kind of the whole modernist version yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that places the 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 autocratic freedom or out. There's, there's another term for it. Uh, autonomous freedom. But yeah, yeah, autonomous and uh, and and it's something that kind of basically puts the whole burden on the individual. Right, right. Um, it, it creates this whole thing, this monster. Yeah. And and it is it's it's you know it, it, it there isn't anything to celebrate in that when people talk about freedom of the individual to pursue whatever they want that's not a good thing no no <laughs> yeah and, and 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 that's exactly what what Nisbet was was uh, concerned with and you know the the opening sentence of the book you know insecurity yeah and and what allowed classical liberalism to to kind of flourish and and do its thing is because it was trying to actually balance some space for the individual that was a good thing, mm -hmm. but it was trying to balance that with what it inherited from the, the kind of moral order, mm -hmm. the families, the social right. structure, even Christendom in a, in, a, in a very interesting way was still framing sure. the, the Judeo-Christian worldview, was still shaping it. So, so for a lot of people, you know, the whole goal is just to get back to a culture that has the Judeo-Christian worldview. But really, that isn't that that isn't enough because it doesn't it doesn't deal with the anthropology that's been the been stuff, yeah, right, right. You know, basically yeah. thrown at us with uh, with the Enlightenment. Right, right. Well, let me let me just uh, wrap this up. We're kind of getting to the point where we can wrap the show up. Um, when I think about you know my work. You know the the stuff I've done on the productive household, and you know my books, you know Man of the House, and you know Household War for the Cosmos. When I think about you know what were the what were the the influences intellectually uh, that helped me or informed that that whole, the, this project that I've been, you know been involved with. Nisbet's one of these guys, and 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 this particular passage mm -hmm. I'm about to read was was uh, seminal for me. 
in this respect. Mm. It was one of those passages that, you know, I'm sure you've had similar experiences where you're like, wow, yeah. my, whole, my whole way of thinking has just been transformed. This, this passage is it. Mm. So here it is. We are told by certain psychologists <laughs> and sociologists with uh, that, with its loss of economic and legal functions, the family has been freed from all that is basically irrelevant to its real nature. <laughs> that the true function of the family, the cultivation of affection, the shaping of personality, and above all, the manufacture of adjustment is now in a position to flourish illimitably to the greater glory of man and society. In a highly popular statement, we are told that the family has progressed from an institution to companionship. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah. now, but he goes on to say, but as or, uh, Ortega de, uh, y Cassette, or Cassette, I don't know how to pronounce that name, has written, quote, people do not live together merely to be together. Mm -hmm. They live together to do something together. That was, that's what hit me, like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Uh, to suppose that the present family or any other group can perpetually vitalize itself through some indwelling affectional tie <laughs> in the absence of concrete perceived functions is like supposing that the comrade, uh, comradely or the comradeship uh, and the ties of mutual aid which grow up incidentally in a military unit will long outlast the condition in which war is plainly and uh, irrevocably banished. Applied to the family, the argument suggests that affection and personality cultivation can somehow exist in a social vacuum, mm. unsupported by the determining goals and ideals of economic and political society. But in hard fact, no social group will long survive the disappearance of its chief reasons for being. And these reasons are not primarily uh, biological, but institutional. Unless new institutional functions are performed by a group, family, trade union, or church, its psychological influence will become minimal. Mm. And this is why I think that people don't grieve like they used to grieve. Mm -hmm. In the old days, People would grieve for weeks because when the father died, it was bad. I mean, really bad. It changed everything. Yes. And it, not just the father, any member of the household sure. right. is doing functions. Yes. And every day you're confronted with those functions that somebody else now has to step up and do, and you are reminded again of the loss. That's right, and, and you, you probably felt <coughs> gratitude at a deeper level you know, for what mm -hmm. they did when they were alive, you'd say, wow, I didn't know that dad did that too. Wow, we, we relied on him for so much. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, I, I came at a very transitional time too. I mean, I, I kind of grew up 70s, 80s. And um, on the one hand, I had very traditional in terms of what this country thinks of traditional family. I mean, my dad was very hard worker um, up until college. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And so a, a lot of functionality there. But there was never, I mean, we had chores to do, but there was never really a lot more. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was very much our world. And, and there was a lot of imagination development. We read, um, pursued a lot of things. There was a lot of structure for that. We played, a lot of creative freedom. Um, 
But on the other hand, I think the seeds of autonomy were rooted there too, mm -hmm. because it had already part of a, a shifted yeah. world, and that really started to show itself right around adolescence. And I think that was the time at which that generation kind of gave us space rather than helicopter. Mm -hmm. Now it's probably the opposite. Right. Um, and, and like I said, I don't know fully how to evaluate it. I am what I am because of that, and there are, you know, and, and there are things there, but. Yeah, I don't think it's the same as a kid today, for example, that uh, is sort of 18, 19. They, they don't have what I had, still a, a more solid social structure that defined mm -hmm. which way you aimed your actions right. and your, 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 your dispositions. Right. And so they don't know what to do. Right. I, I still knew what to do, even yeah, though, and right. I think that's, that was the advantage of, of st that transitional phase, is there was still, there was still a lot of structure there it's not there anymore that, right. that I'm aware of, yeah, or very right. thinly. Yeah, it's so in, it's yeah. so interrupted by technology and yeah. just the hectic sort of pace yeah. of life and and, and this yeah. kind of yeah the utilitarianism and the and then just this the kind of um, that that you know childhood and adolescence isn't about cultivation or it's only about cultivation towards social engineering in the left that isn't right. about well yeah know. tony tony Esselin gets into that all the time oh, nice yeah, yeah. Well, you know uh we should wrap it up now i think we've gone about as long as we should go anything you want to say if we conclude glenn yeah i'm i'm intrigued by this i this is my first really significant encounter with nisbet this notion of community or family or church or something as an entity that is more than just utilitarian, mm -hmm. yeah. that has its own independent existence under God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These kinds of ideas, I think, are really powerful, and I think that they're really important. I'd really like to pursue this some more in connection with the church. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I, yeah I think similarly, I mean, I think our doctrine of creation, and especially Genesis, and what you're dealing with there, as we talked about in previous episodes, complements this a lot. Um, this is sort of a fleshing out of that. Uh, I don't know uh, Nisbet a lot, but I definitely want to kind of pursue it more. And he also is a, he, he was also very suspicious of socialism, oh, yeah. communism, yeah. which he saw as sort of perverted forms of, of what he was up to. So yeah. that would definitely be worth, I think, even visiting again. Oh, yeah, yeah. He definitely saw those as a sort of a mechanistic sort of replacement for the organic, the God-given. Yeah. No. Anyway. Well, uh, I'll just wrap it up like that. <laughs> uh, but uh, so thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Pod Podcast. We really appreciate your support. Uh, we've got, you know, I know a lot of folks out there who listen to us each each episode, and and the number of folks have, uh, you know, reviewed our shows, our, our our podcast on iTunes. We appreciate that, and other folks, you know, contribute. Uh, to offset any expenses of this show. We appreciate you for doing that. But uh, anyway, thanks again for listening to one more episode of the Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now.